Um, I would like to start with a short introduction. First of all, interestingly, when, you know, I, I already gave a presentation three years, I think about three years ago here, about the first book which had been published. And, um, um, you know, since that, I started to teach at the University of Miami, more or less linked to, to the, the, the publication of the first book. And one could have expected that the, I would have had much more opportunities, actually, to, you know, to, to make um, speeches and to discuss the topics in the wider public that, that I'm interested in. Now, funnily enough, and it's somehow absurd for a professor, is that what happens is that you have to constantly you know, prepare papers for, present, for conferences. And you have to go, you're supposed to go much more into depth that you, you know, you're going, you're, you're working much more uh, on details of a larger issue rather than actually trying to talk about, you know, the wider implications, if possible, even with a public which is not necessarily a public of professionals. So, you know, these kind of occasions, funnily enough, have been, uh, have become more rare. I'm quite happy. Uh, tonight just to talk essentially about the context of, of, of the book itself rather than to address one specific topic which could be participation, which could be finance uh, of real estate or, or, or whatever. So um, I'm, I'm very happy to do this. Um, before I forget it, a very special thanks to Stanhope. Uh, essentially the, the research work um, that, that I have underdone um, together with co-authors and a little um, team of people who have helped us uh, has been sponsored uh, by private and public uh, um, developers or development companies. So Stanhope has been one of them, so was involved in the first book about housing typologies and in this one. And I would like to give special thanks because Stanhope also has paid for uh, big parts of the flight ticket coming from Miami over to here, so something that should not be forgotten. Um, thanks also, you know, once again, I mentioned already the presentation three years ago here at the Urban Design Group. Uh, thanks for filming it, to put it on the internet. I think that's quite helpful for the marketing of the book and in order to you know, generate a discussion which otherwise could uh, very quickly become uh, forgotten. Um, before we jump right away into the book itself and uh, you know, some slides about the, the preceding books, um, I would like to make comments which, uh, again, are quite important. First of all, this book has been written together with a German pl planner called Katharina Grön. She uh, now lives and works in, in Hamburg and has also studied there. Um, she works as a planner. Um, afterwards, the second point are the limitations of the content. So and I said that's quite important. I, I would not like to leave the impression that the examples that you will see here are somehow the mirror um, of the, um, the only way of doing urban development. So what we did, if we, if we, if we would like to uh, present a comparative study of urban planning, then we should choose projects which have something in common. So most of the projects that we will see now are actually about a large-scale approach, sometimes starting with a large scale and then being subdivided into smaller plots. But essentially, we have projects which are, um, uh, are sometimes cases even of tabula rasa, or of brownfield redevelopment, but they are just, you know, showing one way of, of doing urban development. Uh, another one would be more uh, going into strategies, trying actually to get small-scale development going, often in an existing urban fabric. So the city is actually trying to somehow uh, um, get um, development going uh, without necessarily buying up most plots of land or reselling them. So what you will see here 
is mainly addressing the larger scale approach, right? The one that we see today, for example, in the uh, Olympic legacy um, pro projects, right? Because there wasn't so much existing structure, at least for some parts of, of those uh, um, um, fields. Um, I also believe that the book comes at a fairly right moment. You will hear the word process very often tonight. I think that process has to be understood in the wider sense. I think for me it has a lot to do with what you would call evidence-based urban design or, or figure-based urban design. Um, you know, we have gathered also for all those 20 examples in the books, we have compared density figures, we have compared the size as such, as much uh, as, as we could. And I believe that's a tendency that we're going to have more and more in the future. So if an urban designer really would like to be successful in the future and try, you know, to try to, be, to understand a tendency actually to have an ever st um, stronger uh, uh, marketing of urban projects, I believe it is very uh, helpful to actually understand what sits behind the design which is actually implemented. I think there's a strong tendency um, uh, from architects actually to just criticize or to look at the implemented architecture or even at the urban design in terms of sidewalks or urban spaces, but to forget how all this actually has, you know, have grown, has grown over time. So um, that's something that, that uh, I, I believe uh, will become stronger and stronger in, in the future. Um, so now I, I was about to start, <laughs> and it's already over. I guess we have to, I don't have the password. Okay, so that's, that's the cover, thank you. That's the cover of, of, of the book I would like to talk about. This was more or less the cover of the first book, so as you can recognize, it's the same publisher. It's also, um, essentially, it grew into a series, and, and, and you know, I would like to tell this story not only for marketing reasons, you know, to mention the two other books, also because they are part, part of this series, but uh, because the three books are very much linked, and the process questions that I'm going to talk about tonight actually have grown over time and have become more and more important. And my somehow thesis is that this has to do with a question of scale, right? If you're just looking at one single building, then it's, it's fair enough to have a very formal approach. But once you're going into larger buildings, and that's what the second book is about, is about high-rise, or if you go into urban plants, uh, um, a strictly formal approach becomes almost an absurdity. Uh, and so I would just show very quickly some of the examples. These obviously are not pages. These are just copy-paste elements of, of some of the visuals being in those books. So what we did, we made a selection of, of 30 housing types uh, from, from all over the world. So this was also a repetitive scheme in the three books, actually, to work completely on an international base and to work consistently also on um, cross-historic base. So, you know, if, as you can see here, so we have a famous example of uh, typology which was born in the late uh, second part of the 19th century in Barcelona. This is the Champla, I think that's, that's the word, master plant by, by Serda. And, you know, what we did is just, you know, we, we, we were always showing areas at the same scale, we redrawing half of it at the double scale here um, um, as an urban plan. We were doing the urban sections. So a lot of material which is somehow very straightforward, uh, but uh, on the other hand, very difficult to find. And, and, and luckily it has found a certain 
uh, amount of, um, of interest. So we have also, you know, we went into archives here in Barcelona just trying to find the buildings which were expressing, you know, the type in a relatively pure uh, uh, case. So here that's, you know, the typical section of one of those Barcelona uh, apartment buildings. You know, what you can see is, um, you know, um, interestingly enough, the ground floor has mainly been built up in the, in the center of the courtyard. So there is no real courtyard in those huge blocks. And what's interesting in terms of uh, development history is actually that Serda, the famous Serda, was able to implement almost the totality of his urban design. So that's the competition entry, but if you look now at an aerial of Barcelona, essentially the, the, the reality looks the same as his competition entry. But what you can see here is that his um, architectural ideas were completely different from what has been implemented. So he just wanted, in most cases, to build up only two sides of the block, uh, the two other sides remaining open, and the center actually being some kind of green park. Now that's something that the developers didn't find that uh, convincing, and actually they decided you know, rather to build on a far higher density, not only three levels on two sides, but actually about five, six, seven levels uh, all around the block. And you can see here, that's the view from the terraces of a first floor apartment. So actually the terraces are going above the element that I was just showing in the section before. Um, so a density which is extremely high, and you can see here the architectural cons consequences. Uh, actually the, the apartments do need air shafts in the middle, because otherwise uh, you would have half of the apartment being completely dark. So here again we have a strong relationship between you know, the development logic of, of this you know, case, which again, you know, I, I don't have the time to go into, into details, and the architecture which has evolved out of it. So obviously it wouldn't make any sense just to criticize the fact that those air shafts are not the most exciting uh, spaces um, uh, on, on Earth. But you know, there's a logic why that is. And you know, that's one of the few exceptions which Serda already had in mind, which have actually been implemented are those kind of smaller family row houses which are going through the middle of some of the blocks, but they're quite rare. And we see here, that was the concept of the first book, actually to compare the mainly traditional style. So most of these 30 examples were 19th century examples. Some of them were vernacular. For example, we have courtyard houses uh, from Marrakesh, or we have tower houses from Sanaa, which obviously are not 19th century, but going up uh, much, much higher and uh, much earlier in time. So here we have a contemporary a case found by the course of this book, Caroline Stahl, who is a German architect from Berlin, who has been working several years for famous uh, practices in Paris, like Edouard Francois or Lacaton Vassal, and now works actually for David Chipperfield uh, in Berlin. And she found um, contemporary case studies which had something in common with the traditional one. So here she was actually finding um, um, uh, a building from Buenos Aires where the architects were kind of trying to find a solution for this problem of the density of the block and the problem that I was talking about here. So if you want to make it viable, you need a very deep floor plan, right? And if you have this deep floor plan, you have the problem of the center. So what the architects did here is quite interesting. First of all, they made the center quite obviously uh, much larger, so they have uh, a much better light quality, but what they also did is they transformed them into duplexes, 
and they did not follow the typical 19th century logic anymore, which prescribed necessarily a view towards the street for all the apartments. That's why the apartments here had to be so deep, because it was impossible to cut them into two. The apartment in the back would have had half the value because everybody wants it to view. Now today with all the traffic noises, uh, traffic problems that we have in the modern city and also in Buenos Aires, you know, it's not necessarily the, the apartment which is looking on the street does not necessarily have more value than the apartment which is calmer looking towards the courtyard. And we find it quite interesting, you know, how you see the development of typologies based on the ch change of our cities and how we live in, uh, in it. And here you see that was actually very, it was a key factor, the whole, the structure of the book was actually organized according to density figures. So first we made a classification of typologies, uh, courtyard houses, rural houses, the first one being one family, and compounds and apartment buildings being multifamily, and we recalculated different density figures. So the habitable rooms per hectare we saw it is actually the most important one because if we are going back to traditional examples, it doesn't somehow really make sense to calculate how many units do we have today because what we can do, we can renovate them and cut them in, you know, in different units. So, but the habitable rooms say a lot about what you could still do today. And you can see here, you know, for example, the Barcelona case, the Casa de Renta, which you have just seen is actually one of the densest, uh, you know, just second after you know, a, um, 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 an area in the Upper East Side in New York that we took as an example of the early residential tower. Talking about towers, so most of those examples in the first book are actually, uh, except of one, they are all low and mid-rise at the maximum. And you know, we started to become interested in the mid and the high rise. So actually towers are slightly exaggerated. We just needed to find you know, kind of a catchy title and so we called it the Urban Towers Handbook, but at the end of the day, many examples are rather about mid-rise and high-rise, just pushing it slightly further. And what we realized is once you start to push it slightly further, the whole development logic and the impact that it has on the city and the, the way you plan the city starts to change. So, um, you know, those were issues we, we were very much interested in, and that's where already the process topic became much more important than for the first book where essentially everybody was remaining in a small envelope, right? Everybody was following very clear-cut rules like in the Barcelona example, right? Like each developer was essentially never directly repeating the building, but he was following exactly the same type and he didn't have to think so much about you know, the impact that had on the exterior, right? Because this impact had already been predefined for thousands of examples. For the tower, you know, these logics change very much so. And, and for this book, I work together with Julie Jambal, who is a French uh, um, art historian, not an architect. And she just finishes, or just finished now at the Sorbonne, her PhD about the history of high-rise in, in France. So it was quite an interesting collaboration. We again made uh, different classifications. We had three parts of the book. The first one is some kind of a morphological ABC of high-rise. So we had... Um, freestanding single interventions. Uh, the Gherkin could be one example which we put into the classification, the monument in the block, because the Gherkin is freestanding, but it is in a fairly dense context. And uh, the second group, morphological group, would have been um, um, a group 
groups of interventions, so several towers being built at the same time, and the third group were high-rise cities, one of those very few, at the end of the day, as we know, there's no real high-rise city, but you have some cities which have big, big parts of their area being built up with a mid- and high-rise typology. So here we actually, you know, once again, what's very important, we are trying to find very different examples. Not all of them, or many of them, are not meant to be best practice. That's the case for all the three books. Uh, particularly for, for the one about high-rise and, and sometimes also even for the one about master planning. So we are, here we have actually a type of intervention which was quite typical for you know, construction in the Parisian banlieue which went you know, from the 60s, the 70s up to the beginning of the 80s and that's here I think a project from the, around the mid-70s uh, um, Quartier du, uh, du Palais in Créteil uh, which is one of the suburbs of, of, of Paris close to your, your university quite typical, actually, atypical in terms of architectural implementation. I find it quite interesting, you know, the way the architect was trying to use those uh, concrete uh, um, uh, balconies as an extension of the fairly small uh, interiors of the apartments. But on the other hand, there's also something very typical about, you know, what you could call those grand ensemble. Uh, you know, there was actually, there was the official name of this type of development, very similar to what happened also in the London suburbs, you know, this kind of social housing, mass housing uh, developments. Uh, um, and, and you can see this, this, you know, the content essentially is social housing, so you have a monofunctional use. You are in the suburbs, built on cheap land. And once again, what's interesting already in terms of process, I think one of the reasons as, you know, kind of, innovative this architecture might be, the slight boredom of you know, the, the urban design as such, which is some kind of a 3D pattern, comes also from the fact that the setup of those projects was extremely simple. So essentially we have um, a, a social housing authority which is just choosing an architect who is at the same time landscape architect and urban designer. So I think at the end of the day, if we sometimes we are looking at those mass housing examples and criticizing the architecture, I do believe it has a lot to do with how those projects have been set up. And obviously I'm not saying anything new, but I think it's still worthwhile uh, repeating it. And you see even an, a gifted architect like, like this one, I think his name is Gérard Granval, I think he's about 85 still working, quite impressive. He's actually still dreaming that they're going to implement what he wanted to do right at the beginning, which is very um, innovative even for today. The idea is actually that uh, um, plants would be growing up those balconies. So I don't know how reasonable that is to implement, but this was actually, it was a green tower even in the 70s. Uh, um, so it's, it's quite, you know, he's, he's definitely a, a talented architect, but somehow limited in terms of, you know, the choice of program. That was chosen. And here, the concept here was to have secondary examples for each of these classes. And so it's the classes, uh, some, some type of 3D pattern. We have here um, a part. Uh, funnily enough, that's a project by Riken Yamamoto, which is uh, called Janwai Soho, has been published many times. Many of you will know it. And uh, it's actually part of the Beijing CBD, which is one example, which I'm not going to gonna show tonight, but one example of the master plan book. And the same is actually the case for Stolfestan Town. It's funny that I, 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 you know, I choose this by chance, but there's a direct link between the two books. And I like, in, to a certain extent, how the, the Japanese architect here is playing with the image of the white modernist tower. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, very repetitive, very clear cut. 
um, but it's kind of a Mesian, uh, um, kind of a Mesian Corbusian uh, mixture. But if you're looking at the fairly complicated ground floor, uh, you know, with a lot of shop use, a lot of restaurants, you actually realize that they were able today to implement a very different type of, of urban strategy, which is actually quite successful. So I think those buildings have a, a, a certain a building problem and apparently like a um, fairly um, rapidly decreasing quality of the interior spaces, but the urban design is, is very successful. And to Solfestan Town, I'm, I'm going to talk to, uh, about it uh, um, a, a bit later. It's a, it's a famous example of you know, the tower in park typology, quite similar to what we are showing in, in Créteil, and you know, mostly monofunctional, even not totally. And um, you know, another example here was one of the few cases lesser known of the high-rise cities. So Hong Kong was one example, Houston as a typical example of a um, um, US downtown, uh, even Monaco. This is probably the least uh, famous, is Higienopolis is the quarter in, in Sao Paulo. And uh, we found it quite fascinating to see how um, a residential area, so all those plots here actually were initially uh, um, marketed, and that's where the name Higienopolis comes from, as a family villa district, right? So these were just small uh, um, villas on each plot. And interestingly, the plot structure didn't change that much, but over time, um, you know, those buildings were just getting taller and taller, ending up, many of them, being 40, 40 uh, uh, levels tall. And funnily enough, also always remaining uh, uh, keeping their real high real estate value. So Higienopolis is a downtown area of Sao Paulo, which actually uh, is an expensive quarter until now, and, and like some other areas, has hardly ever lost values, which is surprising if you look, you know, it's not necessarily what you would um, imagine to be a, a very successful uh, uh, example of high-rise uh, um, urban design, but somehow it looks like, like uh, the people living there are very happy. Just to finish, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm spending already too much time, actually not the actual topic of this presentation, but very interesting if, you, if you're thinking about the history of, of high-rise architecture, uh, specifically in Europe, started you know, more or less at the same time as you know, modernism and its egalitarian ideas. So it's very difficult actually to find a high-rise a floor plan where you would recognize a clear social differentiation. But here, you know, in South America, you know, where the society uh, also socially tends to be slightly different from the one that we had in Europe, or that, you know, at least for which we designed and built high-rise buildings, we actually have here towers which have a clear separation between a service rooms on the north and the larger master rooms on the southwest and east. So you have two apartments here on each floor and several rooms actually just being for service personnel. It's something that is, for me, hardly known for you know, the European tower, quite interesting from a historic and social point of view. This looks more actually like a Parisian apartment building from the 19th century. And I'm going to show some plans afterwards. And you know, I, I mention all this once again because we realize we can't treat the high-rise issue in the same way as the low and mid-rise because you know, the impact that we have on the surroundings is much more important and that's why many cities actually need fairly complex building regulations in order to use the development dynamics of, of mid and high-rise for the, if possible, best of uh, you know, the, 
um, the future of everybody living in those cities. So what uh, Julie did actually, she chose seven uh, cities worldwide, that's an example of Frankfurt, and was trying to explain how the city, you know, that's showing existing and future high-rise buildings on an existing area of, of, of the city. And here are some of the plans that we received from the city planning departments. We met with all those people and they were just explaining to us how, you know, the way how high-rise was meant to be planned around the historic core here of Frankfurt has changed several times. So initially the idea was to have the towers around the former gates, you know, on the glacis here. Then afterwards there was the idea of a finger plan, so the towers would go out like fingers. And then, you know, what essentially was uh, implemented was, the, you know, this, this cluster idea. Uh, which you know Frankfurt now is quite famous for. It never completely works. It's quite interesting. Once you have a developer who really wants to build somewhere else, often you know he gets his way. But that's again that's an interesting struggle, and maybe uh, uh, it also has a certain logic. Even you know the Co-op um, Himmelblau building the um, European Bank is actually not in one of those areas which had been defined as the high-rise clusters, which I find quite uh, somehow ironic as a public building. Um, and here one of the models. And we finished with, uh, we were also worked with a French engineer who had been worked, has, has been working for, uh, or is still working for WSP Group. He's the director of the Paris office and had been working in New York, uh, London, and uh, now in Paris on several high-rise projects. Actually, I'm quite happy because apparently also through this book, he uh, is able now to work on the Rogers Nouvelle a master plan for, I forgot what area in, in Paris, which is meant to be built up partly with towers. And here he was writing about the implication of sustainability. Again, you know, the whole idea about this book was to go away from a vision of the architectural superlative and the financial and the engineering structural um, uh, one, but rather to see it as part of the urban fabric. Now, if you make a sustainability analogy analysis, you find out that until today, the different ways of how to gather energy through high-rise construction is still not you know, paying off the enormous energy effort to build high-rise and to maintain it. So even if we have solar collectors, if we have wind collectors, I think these are great uh, technologies and I think they will evolve more and more with time, but we still can't gain more energy than we have put into the building and that we need for AC and, and, and whatever. So the, the real rationale of high-rise and even mid-rise is actually to implement higher densities because it's through higher densities that we can use the energy. You know, this, this diagram is actually showing so how energy which is used, for example, for office during the day can be used for residential by night or vice versa. So, you know, all those um, technological energy um, um, examples um, and uh, examples of best practice are much easier to implement in high densities. So also if, you know, the whole issue of trying to avoid sprawl in actually trying to accumulate higher densities in the city center, it's something which we should try to do with high-rise, which at the end of the day is quite rarely the case. So actually if you are looking at some of those density figures that we again have recalculated, so these are the FARs. FARs means how many times do we accumulate the surface of the plot of, on the whole surface being built in the tower. So we can see that an example like, you know, we even have Torre Velasca, you know, which is quite a beautiful historic example, which is not bad in terms of, 
of FAR, we are almost at six. The Commerzbank by Foster and Frankfurt is almost 11. St. Mary Axe, the Gherkin, is pretty good, over eight, because it's in a very dense context, so it's using its site fairly well. Um, now, you see this here, the Quartier du Palais, that's the example that I, I was showing you in the Parisian banlieue. So you see, the, you see the density of that? So if we are talking about sustainability, there can't be any kind of sustainability rationale to build those towers. Um, doesn't mean that you're necessarily against them, so I don't want to you know, simplify those kind of discussions, but there is no density rationale if you're looking at that. Very famous also for, you know, I think many of you will be pretty strong in architectural history, so you will know the Hansa Viertel in Berlin started in 58 as some kind of a competitor to the Karl Marx Allee in East Berlin by Henselmann. And again, one of the most famous examples of, of kind of mid -high, partly high-rise uh, architecture. And here, I actually, I was only calculating the high-rise part of this uh, area. You know, I, I think there were also famous, for example, Alva Alto has built there a building which is maybe just eight stories tall or maybe less. So I'm not even considering this. I'm considering the five towers which are uh, um, high, more or less high-rise. I don't remember how many stories they have, but it's probably written somewhere here. And uh, we are at a density of less than two. So I think this actually tells us a story which is quite interesting. So to build, we just had this discussion before, but to build um, densities with high-rise, which are um, um, denser than, for example, central Paris, is something which is very rarely done. It's very difficult to, to establish. And that's why I believe that we need much more also academic discussion and studies about how to use mid and high-rise in a way which makes urban sense. And that's a discussion, unfortunately, that we have quite rarely. I lost a lot of time, so let's jump now into those, some of those 20 examples in the Urban Master Planning Handbook. 